there are a lot of baseball historians and experts who consider the Philadelphia A's of 1929 to have been the best team of all time. Now, I guess there are more who consider the 27 Yankees that way, but it's arguable that you can make a good case for the 29 A's. For one thing, they finished 18 games ahead of the Yankees in the pennant race that year. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Ah, the excitement is palpable, isn't it, friends? Hi there, Tim Hanlon and the podcast. As you know, Good Seats Still Available. Thank you for joining me. It's the curious little podcast. It's focused on what used to be in professional sports. Today, we're working on uh, baseball as a, as our topic again, as we've done on uh, many occasions in the past. And uh, specifically, we're talking about uh, one of the longest lasting teams, if not the longest lasting team consecutively in Major League Baseball, the team today known as the Oakland A's. But we're uh, going to be focused our time on our conversation today around their time as the Philadelphia Athletics, uh, which goes all the way back to 1901 at the inception of the American League. And uh, today's guest, David Jordan, as uh, the author of The Athletics of Philadelphia, Connie Max White Elephants, uh, published by McFarland. And uh, our conversation today will be about uh, the legacy of Connie Mack and, and the uh, the times of baseball in the early 1900s in Philadelphia, and uh, perhaps one of the most uh, potent uh, teams, at least for a good number of years in the earlier part of the decade and then the uh, in the 1930s as well, uh, the Philadelphia A's. Uh, were quite the thing, quite the sensation, uh, despite some lean times. And ultimately, those lean times in the uh, mid-1950s uh, ultimately pushed them to uh, selling the team and then them moving to Kansas City and then, of course, onwards later on uh, to Oakland. Anyway, the lineage of the uh, the current uh, A's franchise back when they started in Philadelphia is the topic of, of choice today. And uh, hopefully you'll learn something, as I did uh, by that conversation with uh, David Jordan in just a couple of seconds. Uh, before we get there, I do want to remind you that we're again sponsored by our friends at Audible, uh, the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles uh, in every genre imaginable uh, that uh, you'd like to listen to instead of perhaps reading. Uh, Audible titles play on every uh, device that you can imagine, whether that be an iPhone or a Kindle or any of the Android systems, uh, more than 500 devices. Uh, and there's really no excuse then for, to be able to listen to any audio book from Audible anytime and anywhere. And of course, uh, if you'd like to give it a try for yourself, you can't imagine a better deal than this. That is a free audiobook download and a free month's worth of Audible services. Uh, when you go to our little website uh, URL, and that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and you will get one free audiobook download, as well as a month's free service of Audible uh, on us gratis. Um, and you can cancel at any time. Uh, it's just a great way to try it out for yourself. And there's just an amazing amount of books there. There's some great baseball history books there, lots of sports history stuff, but of course, other things too. And like I said, just about all the genres that you can imagine uh, in the book uh, world. Uh, it's audibletrial.com slash good seats for your free uh, one month trial and your free audiobook downloaded. Again, you can cancel at any time. Uh, it's pretty much no risk uh, if you really can uh, 
get your arms around uh, the uh, the concept. Give it a try. I love the service. I cannot live without it. And I doubt you will either once you give it a free trial. Uh, and then again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And uh, by doing so, you'll also be giving a little bit of uh, support to the show. And we always appreciate that, too. Okay, enough promotional babble. Let's get on to our conversation. The reason that you came and it is now time to talk to David Jordan, the author of The Athletics of Philadelphia, Connie Max, White Elephants, here on the podcast. A lot of this podcast is devoted to teams and leagues that don't exist anymore, and frankly, a bunch of them being incarnations of current teams uh, that that exist. And I think, frankly, as uh, as the years go on, you know, there's new generations of fans and whatnot, and and there's a distinct lack of uh, understanding or, frankly, sometimes even interest into uh, the origins of these, right? So I think the fans in Oakland, you know, who are uh, backers of the A's and, and you know, frankly, the A's have, you know, for a number of years been always rumored about sort of being one of those teams that could relocate in, in pro baseball uh, yet again. Uh, but, you know, if you really want to dial it all the way back, uh, the history of the of the athletics, right, not only starting in Philadelphia, but around the beginnings of the old American League when it was first found as well. So maybe that's the best place to start history-wise. I guess it takes back to the turn of the century when this thing called the American League uh, sort of came about because the A's were certainly part of that uh, as it was being uh, debated and, uh, and launched. Yeah, I, you know, as a fan, uh, looking at the bad teams that I was watching, I also got interested in reading back about the really good teams that they had had. And the A's had a great history, uh, along with all their ups and downs. I followed the the founding of the American League, Ban Johnson and all that. Connie Mack signing some of the Phillies' best players because the Phillies uh, treated them badly. So that all became part of, of the background of what I was doing. Well, I mean, let's talk about that. So the, the, the formation of the American League in, in 1901, right, was really... My understanding was it was basically a, a conversion of another league that was just south of the pros called the Western League. And you mentioned this guy named Ban Johnson. Um, maybe you can explain a little bit about uh, uh, who he was as well as why the athletics became part of of this league when there already was a team in the National League called the Phillies. Well, he was, uh, he was a former sp- uh, sports writer and he had a drinking problem, but it didn't keep him from doing what he wanted to do. And he was he ran a the Western League or Western Association, I guess it was called, which was mainly uh, teams in the Midwest and Detroit and uh, Cleveland, places like that. And in the year two thousand or nineteen hundred, he changed the name of the league to the American League, although it was still a minor league at that point. But uh, and he got a team in Chicago, which you know the, the National League had a team in Chicago, the Cubs. But they agreed that he could put a team in Chicago if they kept it very much in the south side of town, while the Cubs were in the north side of town. Strangely enough, of course, that's still the way Chicago is built up, with the White Sox in the south and the Cubs in the north. But uh, in 1901. Johnson announced that his team was no, or his league was no longer a minor league, that it was now a major league, and it would compete as such against the National League. And he put teams in several cities where there were 
already uh, National League teams established, like Boston and, uh, and of course, Philadelphia. And he had a couple of sports writers. Well, he, he, he got Connie Mack, who had been managing in Milwaukee in the, uh, the Western League for Johnson, who had had a couple of years' career as a major league catcher with Pittsburgh in the 19, 1890s. He had Mack come in to establish a team in Philadelphia. And Connie Mack made friends with couple of uh, baseball sports writers for the Buster or Butch Jones from the Associated Press and Frank Huff from the local Philadelphia Inquirer and they helped him out they first of all they introduced him to a uh, fellow named Ben Scheib who had a lot more money than Connie Mack did who was already involved in sporting goods with AJ Reach who <laughs> who was a former baseball player great, who was also part owner of the Phillies. But he didn't get along with Colonel Rogers, the Phillies leader, just as many of the Phillies players didn't get along with Colonel Rogers. So Reach encouraged Scheib to get involved with his new team in the American League. So Scheib put up a lot more money that, that there was to go in, he wound up with 50% ownership of the team. Connie Mack got 25% ownership, and they gave the other 25% to the two sports writers, Jones and Huff. So that, that was a good start for them. Uh, they signed several players from the Phillies. The most interesting one, of course, was Napoleon Lajoie, and who was you know a top second baseman for the Phillies. And they started out in 1901, uh, and they called the team in Philadelphia the Athletics, which was kind of a historic baseball name in Philadelphia because there had been uh, an athletics team back in the National Association in 1871 for several years. So, so that was what Mac and the Shibes picked up. Yeah, it's, started it, out. Yeah, it's, so it sounds like, I mean, you're mentioning um – uh, I guess he went by Nap, or was uh, known as Nap uh, uh, in other in baseball lore as well. But it seems like that sort of uh, cajoling or convincing uh, players uh, established in the National League to jump into the American League was part and parcel of getting the league up and running, right? Oh, absolutely. From the Phillies, the A's got not only Lajoie but also several pitchers and some other ball players, and. Of course, Colonel Rogers, the Phillies owner, went to court to try to stop this, and the local court in Philadelphia turned him down, threw his suit out. So, of course, he appealed that to the state Supreme Court, which took a good bit longer time to come to any decision. In the meantime, the 1901 A's finished in fourth place, but Napoleon Lajoie, or Larry Lajoie, he was also called, uh, did manage to lead the league in hitting with a 422 batting average. Unfortunately for the A's, in April of 1902, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court handed down a decision saying that uh, Lajoie could not play for any team other than the, the Phillies to whom he had been signed to a contract. So <laughs> on opening day, the Phillies were, or the A's were playing in Baltimore. Colonel Rogers in Philadelphia went to court and got a, an injunction 
against Lajue playing for the, the athletics. And so they notified Connie Mack in the eighth inning of the game, and he pulled Lajue out. And that was the last time he played at that point for the A's. He went back to talk to Colonel Rogers about joining, rejoining the Phillies, as the court order said he should do. And Rogers said, well, the first thing is you're going to have to pay a, a hefty fine because you jumped the team last year. <laughs> well, as anybody could have figured out, with that, uh, Lajoie got up and walked out. And uh, Ben Johnson and Connie Mack and the rest of the American League people finally worked out a way that uh, Lajoie and uh, one of the pitchers went to Cleveland to the team out there. Cleveland sent a few players to the Athletics in exchange, and Lajoie managed to stay out of Philadelphia when the Cleveland team came to town so as not to violate the court order. And uh, But he became a huge star for Cleveland for many, many years. Was, was Lajoie's uh, 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 predicament uh, common amongst other players as well, or was this only unique to the A's situation, as far as you know? I don't think there were too many other lawsuits brought. Colonel Rogers of the Phillies believed in doing that, and he did bring a number. But um, yeah, in 1902, Elmer Flick left the Phillies to join the A's, although he then went to Cleveland along with Lajoie because they didn't want to get into more court orders. And uh, Ed Delahanty, who was one of the Phillies' top all-time players, left the team and went to Washington in the American League. The reason I'm asking is because obviously in 1903, there was, uh, for baseball historians, right, who were paying attention, obviously there was a, a major event then that happened that kind of aligned, I guess, the American League and the National League on a more legal basis uh, that did not exist in 01 and 02. I'm just wondering if, if this sort of, sni- uh, you know, this sort of uh, snit, shall we say, in Philadelphia was more widespread or was maybe sort of the, the best example, I guess, of the tension that needed to be, I guess, legally resolved going forward. Yeah, I yeah, I guess th- there were others, uh, but they weren't, you know, Lajoie and Flick were the two, and Delahanty were the biggest names to go. And uh, at the end of the 1902 season, the two leagues did manage to get together and uh, formed a merger for, for as it exists today. <laughs> but uh, the A's in 1902 did win the pennant in their season. But the, the World Series didn't start till the following year, right? And for for our listeners who are screaming at the uh, at their their devices that they're listening, I guess the the national agreement, I guess quote unquote, was what it was called. Uh, yeah, and it yeah. it still exists to this day, where essentially the two leagues are uh, separate yet uh, equal, so to speak, uh, and uh, and related and and part of a, a broader umbrella, which we now know as uh, as Major League Baseball. It's just interesting that uh, that maybe that that contract jumping and league jumping back in the day may have been sort of the seeds of that, which I think is uh, not known to many people, frankly. Oh, yeah. It was it was why the National League finally decided they had to get together, because, uh, you know, not only was it taking away players, but it was taking away fan attendance as well, so that they were happy to, to join up and get together, and, and it's gone that way ever since. And of course, in 1905, the A's won another pennant, 
they played the Giants, the New York Giants in the World Series. And at, at this point, of course, John McGraw had left the Baltimore team in the beginning of the American League and jumped back to the New York Giants in the old National League. And, and in an interview that he gave to newspaper reporters denigrating all the American League teams, he said, oh, that Ben Scheib down there in Philadelphia has a real white elephant on his hands. Ben Scheib and Connie Mack listened to that, and they decided to make the white elephant the symbol of their ball club, which it has been more or less ever since. In 1905, when they played the Giants in the World Series before the first game, Lave <laughs> Cross came out to give the lineup cards to the umpires, and McGraw came out for the Giants, and Cross gave him a package which contained a white elephant, <laughs> which McGraw put on the top of his head, and the fans in the stands laughed heartily at that. Well, so there's a fun fact, right? I, uh, I, I, that's something I didn't even know in even my research, that uh, the origin of the elephant, which uh, has occasionally made its way uh, with prominence in logos and whatnot uh, over the years, even all the way into Oakland, that is the origin of such. That's very interesting. That is it, from John McGraw. <laughs> well, the, the, and, uh, that team, obviously, the team in that decade or a little bit further than that uh, was clearly no white elephant. It was no flash in the pan, right? I mean, they were uh, essentially the most dominant team, or at least one of them, uh, in the fledgling American League. Right, and, and, and it wasn't very long before they were outdrawing the Phillies, who were still in old Baker Bowl, but the Phillies were kind of down, and the A's in 1905 and 6 and 7 won pennants. So they played in the World Series in those years. Well, 1905 and 6 they did. 1907, they just missed out. Well, they, but, uh, you we're talking about, I think they won six times in the uh, in the early part of the uh, the 1900s, uh, their, their last uh, uh, AL pennant being in the, the years of 1913, 1914, and they won the World Series in 1910, 1911, and 1913. They were basically the dominant team in the National League uh, over that period of time. And I guess we're talking about most of, I guess, the second... The American the, League. Uh, the American League of the uh, early 1900s and the first part of the uh, 1910s, shall we say. Yes, they were. You know, Detroit always had a good ball club. They had Sam Crawford and Ty Cobb and people like that. But the A's with, uh, with Chief Bender and Eddie Plank and Rube Waddell as their pitchers and uh, the 1910, 11, 13, 14 stretch, they had what was called the $100,000 infield of uh, Stuffy McGinnis on first base, Eddie Collins on second, uh, Jack Barry at shortstop and Frank Homerun Baker at third base. Uh, and uh, you know, $100,000 at that point was considered beyond price. And that's what this infield was considered, and they uh, they won some a lot of games. And of course, in 1909, Ben Shad built a new ballpark. The, uh, the the one that they originally started out with in 1901, the two sports writers Jones and Huff found Connie Mack a lot at 29th and Columbia Avenue, where they were able to build up a, a wooden grandstand. And they called it Columbia Park, and they played it in that for the first nine years. But uh, they wanted something more. And 
by the time Scheib came along to build his new park, the uh, the structural business had gotten to the uh, concrete and steel kind of buildings, which hadn't been done before. So the one they built was the first concrete and steel ballpark. And he, uh, Scheib found a, a block between 20th and 21st Streets and Lehigh and Somerset Avenues in North Philadelphia. And he bought every every house on that block. Now, right across this, down the street was the um, the hospital for ailments called the smallpox hospital. But Ben Scheib, who had connections in the city, learned that they were going to close that, which would be fine if you were trying to get people to come to visit your ballpark. And it also, the neighbors in the block did not know that it was going to close because if they had known that, they would have raised the prices for the houses that they sold off. But, uh, and Scheib used, you know, phony names to buy these things so that people didn't realize that he was buying them and had to have the whole block. And he also had to get a couple of paper streets in this block taken off by his friends in the city council. But in 1909, they opened the new ballpark, which was called Scheib Park, and it was considerably larger than Baker Bowl, the Phillies ballpark, much more modern, and uh, it was a great success for the A's. And of course, then after that, they had the stretch of 1910, 11, 13, and 14 when they won the pennants and, and three world championships in that time. So Scheib Park became basically the capital of baseball for a while. Interesting. And not only the capital of baseball because of a, of a good team, but because of a, a structure that arguably became kind of a template for how to build stadiums and uh, in, in other cities in the years to come via concrete and steel. Absolutely. Also, of course, one thing, the uh, right field wall in Scheib Park was not all that high. So the Houses on 21st Street, or 20th Street, I'm sorry, behind the right field wall, the neighbors up there kind of built up a business by putting seats up on their rooftops and selling tickets to people who wanted to come up there, and they could see the ballpark with nothing obliterating their sight. (laughs) And this was a big business for quite a while until finally, uh, many years later, the A's built a higher wall in right field so that the it obliterated the viewpoint of the neighbors on the roofs. Well, that, that's something here uh, here in Chicago people know very well with Wrigley Field, especially with the new ownership, right? Um, oh, yeah. And I, I don't know, now I saw this term, I don't know if this is unique to uh, the situation in Philadelphia. This is obviously, we're going to get to that in a little while, into the decades later when uh, money was a really big issue. Uh, and it was called a spite wall. Is, is that a, is that a term that's familiar to you? That's what the neighbors called it. Yeah, they went they went to court to try to uh, keep that down. But the the A's had a good lawyer named Richardson Dilworth, who later became mayor of the city, and he got the uh, their court suit thrown out so that the the wall was was built up. And of course, by the time they built it up. There wasn't all that much demand to see the A's playing because 
that was during the stretch of the the last place teams in the 30s. Right, and, and no better way to engender uh, love and admiration to uh, the neighbors than by building a wall so do you can prevent them uh, any goodwill whatsoever from uh, from bleeding into the ballpark without having to pay for it. So, uh, right. <laughs> Um, so okay, yep. <laughs> b- b- before we get into uh, a, a seminal moment in 1914, I want to uh, sort of go back to the ownership structure because until that point you had basically three sets of owners, uh, 50, 25%, and 25%. But uh, w- what happened uh, with, uh, with our sports writer friends, Sam Jones and Frank Huff, it seems like they got um, uh, out of the picture so at, around that time. Yeah, the um, Ben Scheib made a big loan to Connie Mack, and Connie Mack was able to buy out the Jones and Huff, so that he was then a 50% owner along with Ben Scheib, uh, although he did owe him a lot of money on account of it. And uh, why? So, that, so, so why why was Mack interested in buying out the uh, the, the two sports writers? Any particular reason that you could tell? Well, he wanted to, I mean, at this point, he knew that he was uh, you know, very much connected with his team. And by buying out the sports writers, he was a 50% owner, and uh, that gave him a lot of control. And he always had a, a good relationship with Ben Scheib and with Ben's sons, who ran it after Ben died. But if the sports writers had still owned a quarter of the team, it would have been a much less stable operation. I was just wondering if there's any ill will or, or any consternation, I guess, in terms of running the baseball operations where maybe Mac wanted to consolidate and, and not have to deal with sort of other voices uh, in the ownership structure that way. I don't think there was any ill will. I think it was just sports writers didn't put up the money that they needed to buy their quarter interest it uh, you know it was kind of a gift to them from Scheib, but Connie Mack decided that he wanted to uh, have it, and that was that. <laughs> well, it seems like that uh, that Mack had uh, then afterwards uh, pretty much control over the baseball side, where it seems like Scheib was the business side of it, right? And that was kind of the I don't know, call it a gentleman's agreement, but the, it seems like that's how they were mutually. Um, uh, related with each other, where Mac was handling stuff on the field and, and Scheib was Mr. Off the Field. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Scheib's sons, uh, John and the other one, uh, were also, they ran the business part of it after Ben died in 1922. And uh, it was also always, you know, fairly even keel with Connie Mack doing the baseball part of it. Well, okay, so it, despite that sort of ownership shift, and, and arguably it, it sounds like it's strengthening, right? and you're coming off of uh, a World Series win in 1913, maybe you can take us to the uh, following year where in 1914 they again made the World Series, but with a different result and, and maybe some of the things that happened because of that. Yeah, 1914, they won the pennant without too much difficulty, their fourth pennant in five years, and they faced the Boston Braves in the World Series. Before the season started, of course, the Federal League had started up as an attempt at another major league. Now, they didn't take any A's players except Danny Murphy, who was pretty much at the end of his career in the major leagues anyway. 
but during the season, he kept in touch with his buddies back on the A's to see about uh, maybe, maybe something could we could go on and after the season is over. And the team kind of split into those who were saying, well, maybe the Federal League is not all that bad. And the others who said, yeah, get away from here. No Federal League. This was, you know, not a very pronounced distinction, but it, it did exist. And when the A's lost the World Series in four straight games to the Boston Braves, after the A's were heavily favored, there was some feeling, particularly on Connie Mack's part, that you know maybe this Federal League feeling and division was, was partly responsible for it. So several days after the end of the World Series, when they had lost to the Boston Braves, Connie Mack announced that he was putting on waivers uh, his three top pitchers, Plank, Bender, and Rube Waddell. And this, of course, was a huge sensation because, uh, or no, Jack Coombs, not Waddell. Two of them did sign with the Federal League, and, and Jack Coombs signed with the Brooklyn Dodgers in the National League. And shortly thereafter, and again, this is because Connie Mack and Shive didn't have a lot of extra money to throw into the ball club. Uh, he sold Eddie Collins, who was considered one of the top two players in baseball at the time, to the Chicago White Sox for $50,000. And this was another huge jolt to the Philadelphia fans. But Connie Mack said he had plans for how he was going to proceed, and he did need the cash. <laughs> Unfortunately, Frank Homerun Baker, his third baseman, who was already under contract for the 2015 season, said he wanted to have some more money because of all this money that was floating around. And Max said, you're under contract. You'll play for me or you won't play at all. So much to everyone's surprise, including Connie Max, Frank Homerun Baker sat out the 2015 season. And the A's not only didn't win the pennant, as they had the several years before, but they fell into last place. It was the first time in in baseball history that a team had fallen from first place to last place in a single season. And they, during the season, he also shipped off a number of other players to other teams for cash because he was they were so short on cash cash driven and financial related and how much of this sort of offloading of talent was this reaction to the federal league and other dollars uh, chasing uh talent and his reluctance to sort of pay and to keep up with that uh, whether he could or not well i th- i think it was a couple things first of all he couldn't match the federal league offers and he knew that so it, you know the federal league business was a major part of this particularly since uh you know Bender and Plank signed with the federal league teams after they were released by the A's but uh the other 
sales that he gave during the year when he, he sold Jack Barry, he sold Herb Pennock, he sold Bob Shockey to other teams in, in the league for cash was because he needed the cash. The result of this, of course, in 1916, the A's of 1916 may have been the very worst baseball team of all time. They they finished with a record of 36 wins and 117 losses. And they had terrible earned run averages, low batting averages, fielding errors all over the place. It was a dreadful team. And because they had gotten rid of all of their players, or most of their players, they set out on a siege of a number of years where they just finished first in last place one year after another. Five years in a row after the 1914 pennant, they finished last. Okay, friends, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to quickly remind you that today's episode of Good Seat Still Available is brought to you by our friends at Audible the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre you could think of. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices and MP3 players for listening anytime, anywhere. And for a limited time, my audience can listen to a free download of any book that they choose, as well as get a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And you can choose from over 180,000 titles, as we said, including uh, one that I'm listening to right now. It's called The Ten Gallon War by John Eisenberg. That's the story of the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Um, another one on my list, which I have yet to download, but is on my queue, uh, that could be interesting to our audience here is called The National Forgotten League by Dan Daly, entertaining stories and observations from pro football's first 50 years. Those are just two of the many thousands of titles to choose from, and not just in sports history, but you name the genre that uh, you might want to listen to, and Audible's got it. By the way, two uh, two guests, perhaps, that we'll have on the show, hopefully sometime soon. But again, go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free 30-day trial, as well as your free audiobook download to try it out for yourself. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now, back to our conversation. You know, the Federal League, right, only lasted for a couple of years. And and I guess my real question as it relates to the A's is that the Federal League wasn't just something that was affecting the A's, right, and Connie Mack's uh, running of, of the A's team, right? It was a challenger to the American League and the National League. And I would imagine that this idea of uh, competitive salaries and an inability for some franchises to keep up with such, uh, it was it was more universal than just the A's. And so I guess why the A's were so dramatically impacted versus some of the others? Well, I, I think they seem to be impacted more than the others. Uh and I guess the other teams did try to match what the federal leagues were offering. The A's didn't have the money to match anything, so that's that's why everything fell apart more for them than for anybody else. It just it just seems that that Mac just was so I guess convinced that he could rebuild from 
younger talent and 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 not having to pay uh, talent to kind of you know I guess that maybe that was a a bit of a uh, you know a belief that he had some managerial skills that uh, could mold uh, you know players of of all kinds of talents into uh, into still winning ways, but obviously that didn't didn't prove well until uh, at least the middle of the next decade. Yeah, seven years in last place doesn't sound very good, but you know they they finally did start to pull it together. Well, let's, in nineteen yeah, before that, actually, let's talk about Mac for a second because Mac obviously is is a huge figure in this entire story, right? And 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 you know he's obviously the the Mister Baseball of this franchise. Um, maybe you could spend a couple of seconds talking about sort of him as as a guy, right? Because uh, he wasn't like most managers, was he? I mean, he was, uh, you know, you look at all the old pictures and stuff, he was quite, um, well, it looked like he was pretty tall, uh, number one. Maybe he, was, he was tall, but he he decided when he became a manager of the A's that there was no reason for him to get dressed in a player's uniform. So he, for his whole managing career in Philadelphia, he sat on the bench in a dark suit with a tie and, and uh that was that. He never wore a player's uniform anymore. And that, of course, set him apart from all the other managers who dolled up with their team in the regular uniforms. And, yeah, he was dignified, and he tried to keep things on a, on a cool and collected level as much as he could. If players were out of hand, he could get, he'd get rid of them. Uh, Rube Waddell, he did try to handle as well as he could, and he got a number of years of good pitching out of Rube Waddell, but eventually he even ran ran out of steam with Waddell who, all over the place. I think you know, most of the players who played for Connie Mack thought very highly of him. They uh, felt that you know, he didn't get involved in in scrapes with them, uh, very often, you know, occasionally he would lose his temper, but not too often. <laughs> but uh, and he was respected throughout baseball as uh, one of the top men around. And of course, as the years went on and on and on, and all the other managers eventually got fired or retired, and he just stayed on and on until you know, he was considered the grand old man of baseball. <laughs> Well, so, but it, 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 his uh, his uh, dignified look and and magisterial style, I guess you could maybe sort of say, um, besides it sort of going out of fashion and all those kinds of things, um, it did it, it did actually have an effect on his ability to manage a game, right? Because my understanding was that because of his dress and his his demeanor, he was not allowed to actually be on the bench as the manager at games. Oh no, he was on the bench. He sat in the dugout. He he couldn't go on the field, but uh, you know the umpires occasionally would come over to the dugout to talk to him about things. But he did sit on the dugout. Oh, okay. But he was not allowed on the field. He, you know, well, he why had was he not allowed on the field? Scorecard in his hand, and he used to wave it around to move the outfielders around. So why was he not allowed on the field? Why, what what was the sin of wearing a tie and a and a, and a hat and you know looking professional? Well, uh, I guess you're supposed to be in uniform if you came out on the field. It may be that he just chose never to go on the field. I'm not sure that he ever tested his right to go on the field or not, but he didn't. Very interesting. Um, unique, certainly, certainly that. Um, yeah. 
Well, uh, anybody still alive from that time, if they want to call in and uh, let us know. I, I doubt there's many people who are going to be there who would have actually known that story uh, from uh, circa the 1919 or so. Um, all right. Well, let's let's before we get into sort of the rise of their, I guess, their second golden age, um, there was something uh, significant that happened in 1922 on the ownership and management side. Uh, maybe you want to talk about that uh, before we kind of move any further in 1922. Well, I guess um, because of Ben Scheib's death, that, that's his sons took over the his 50 percent of the team and they ran the business side of the team from there. Connie Mack was very pleased and happy with that. So there was still no shift in that that uh, Mack was still in charge of the baseball side of things, and now yes. uh, the uh, the sons of 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 Scheib were now the guys overseeing the business side. But that relationship, though, that that definitional relationship still stood, where it was Mack on the on field and and the Scheibs now uh, on the off field. Yes. Oh, yeah. And it, it seemed to work well, as the next few years showed, because uh, by 1926, the A's were, you know, in a struggle for the pennant. They fell six games short, but it was a long way from the seven years in last place. Well, let's talk about and, those years, because you mentioned some of the players. I mean, Jimmy Fox and, uh, and Al Simmons, um, uh, Mickey Cochran, you had uh, Lefty Grove, you had... Uh, a number of players that uh, arguably um, were among baseball's best. And it seems to me that uh, during that period of time, I guess you're talking about the late 20s and through the early 30s, uh, the Philadelphia A's were statistically and uh, in many other respects, talent-wise, I guess, uh, as strong, if not in many cases, stronger than a team just up north that was getting a lot more press and a lot more uh, a lot more credi- uh, credit, I guess, for, for being uh, one of baseball's best, and that being the New York Yankees. Do you want to speak about that a bit? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Uh, there are a lot of baseball historians and experts who consider the Philadelphia A's of 1929 to have been the best team of all time. Now, I guess there are more who consider the 27 Yankees that way, but... Uh, it's, it's arguable that uh, you can make a good case for the 29 A's. For one thing, they finished 18 games ahead of the Yankees in the pennant race that year. I was thinking, you know, in, in 19, I guess early, a couple of years earlier, Jack Dunn, the owner of the Baltimore Orioles in the uh, International League, got in touch with Connie Mack and s- sold him his uh, top-notch left-handed pitcher, who had been in the main in the minors for a number of years, uh, Robert Moses Grove, known as Lefty Grove. And the interesting thing was, in 1914, Jack Dunn had made another offer to Connie Mack to sell him uh, a, one of his top pitchers named George Herman Ruth, Babe Ruth. And in 1914, Connie Mack said, well, we don't need him to win the pennant this year, and I don't have the cash available right now to pay for him, so you might want to offer him to the Red Sox. In 19, uh, when Grove came along, Connie Mack made sure that they bought him for $100,600. And, and, of course, Lefty Grove became one of the top pitchers of all time, 
And they had Jimmy Fox. They had Al Simmons he got and playing in the outfield. Uh, Bing Miller he had. He traded him away to the Browns, but then he got him back a year or so later. He had Mule Hawes in the outfield. Uh, Cochran was playing for the Portland team in the Pacific Coast League and looked like a, a sure bet. So Connie Mack bought a partial interest in the Portland Ball Club so that he could make sure that when they sold Cochran to the major leagues, they sold him to the athletics. And, of course, Cochran became one of the all-time great catchers. In uh, 1929, the A's posted a record of 104 wins and 48 losses, and they got their first pennant in 16 years, and they finished 18 games ahead of the Yankees, who were just two years behind, beyond their supposed all-time great team. They faced the Chicago Cubs in the World Series, and uh, Connie Mack had a pitcher named Howard Emke, who didn't wasn't one of his star pitchers. He wasn't with Grove and George Earnshaw, uh, the big stars, but uh, he decided Emke, who pitched sidearm, right-hander against the Cubs' top-hitting right-handed lineup, and they'd be in Wrigley Field where they'd be coming out of the center field bleachers where everybody sat with their white shirts, that it would be tough for the Cubs' right-handers to pick up Emke's sidearm pitching. And Emke pitched a complete game, struck out 13, which set a World Series record, and won the game for the A's. And they won game two again and uh, went back to Shy Park. The Cubs took game three, and in game four, the Cubs ran up an eight to nothing lead. And in the seventh inning, everything fell apart for the Cubs, and the A's scored 10 runs in the inning, led by a three run inside the park home run by Mule Hawes. But Cubs outfielder Hack Wilson lost the ball in the sun. And uh, so that gave them a 3-1 to series lead. And the next day, with President Herbert Hoover on hand, the A's came back from a 2 nothing deficit in the ninth inning with uh, Haas again hit a two-run homer. And then Al Simmons and Bing Miller hit doubles to score the winning run, and the A's won the World Series. So that was big time in 1929. In 1930, again, they won the league with a 102 and 80 or 52 record, rather, and they uh, beat the St. Louis Cardinals in uh, the World Series to win their second series in a row. And in 1931, again won the pennant with a record of 107 and 45, and that was the best record in the franchise history. They played the. I'm sorry, that's incredible, right? I mean, all that stuff is incredible, especially given how low the team was just a handful of years prior to that period. Yeah. Oh, but you know, you look at the names on the team, and they really were were, were great ball players and great pitchers and. Of course, in 31, <laughs> they ran into the Cardinals with a rookie outfielder named Pepper Martin, who stole everything and got hits all over the place. And, and the Cardinals won the uh, 
seventh, seventh game with a 4-2 to two victory, and the A's didn't have the World Series after two years of winning it. But it was still a great three-year stretch. Well, but then also, we, also they could not escape, right? Which uh, and I think a lot of uh, things and in, 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 uh, people around that time, obviously, the default back to the the Great Depression, obviously, that it started in, you know, essentially in 29, but really started to sink its teeth into the American economy and psyche uh, in the, the years that followed. And and the Philadelphia A's and Connie Mack and the Shibes were were no different in their uh, the, the, the reckoning that uh, they had to face with uh, the A's and their finances and, and, and the like. So we start to see just after that then uh, some of these star players starting to leave the A's for financial reasons, right? Yeah, unfortunately that happened. You know, the Great Depression came along. Connie Mack did manage to buy out some of the members of the Scheib family who died so that he had a majority ownership. But uh, because of the Depression, the attendance fell way off. And he was had to sell off his star players, Grove and Cochran and Simmons and Dykes and Mule Haas. He kept a hold of Jimmy Fox a little longer. Jimmy Fox uh, in 1932 and 1933 was the MVP in the American League with uh, great home run hitting. And uh, in 1932 it was that he hit 58 home runs and he, he even had a couple home runs that he hit in games in Detroit that got rained out and washed away so they didn't count and uh, otherwise he could have tied or broken Babe Ruth's home run record. (laughs) However, in 1935, with most of the nucleus of the great teams traded away, they crashed back into last place again. And from 35 on, they they really uh, were bad. They, well, uh, it also it also seems to me that that another sort of little issue here with regarding uh, with regards to how Mac uh, ran the team baseball wise uh, really started to hit home, and that was a and I'm curious as to why a lack of any real semblance or or strength of a farm system uh, to generate new players for their for the senior team. Um, obviously the lack of that really hurt in the thirties when, you know, you're selling some of your star players. Um, first of all, is, is that true? And then I guess second is if so, why, why was there sort of a lack of interest and or, uh, uh, I guess maybe even capability of a minor league system, uh, from which to draw on, especially in those lean times. And by the way, this wouldn't be the, the first time that he would experience lean times on the field, right? Right. Well, um, you know, the farm system had not become a, a standard practice. Uh, you know, Branch Rickey was just starting out in this period of time. So you had to buy your players from the minor league teams, and the A's with their, uh, you know, they didn't have any independent wealth behind them, and they were dropping off in attendance, so they couldn't really uh spend a lot of money on buying talented minor league players. And that, that was, you know, one of the reasons why they sunk down again. They, uh, you know, they got a few fellows like Bob Johnson, 
but they did install lights in Scheib Park in 1939, the first American League team to play night games, but uh, it didn't make their team any better. It made some fans go a little better. Uh, finally, the uh, state legislature had eliminated the Sunday, boy, you couldn't play on Sunday law, but uh, they were able to play between two and six o'clock on Sundays. And I remember some of those Sunday doubleheaders when the second game, you'd get up to the fourth inning and it'd be 20 minutes to six and see if you could get it in officially before the uh, six o'clock came along. But they still had Connie Mack as their as their headliner. Uh, bringing in his sons, right? Because that's important to know that kind of in the, you know, by the end of the 30s, you had um, you had Mac not only uh, in, in charge of the entire franchise now uh, and his relationships with the Shibes, but now started to bring in uh, his sons into the mix. Um, I'm curious as to why, given somebody who was so uh, supreme and somewhat uh, authoritative, I guess, on the field, why he would even entertain the idea of bringing in uh, other folks to help manage baseball affairs, let alone family. Well, he, uh, his son Earl, who had a very small, limited minor league career, he wasn't very good, but he was interested in the, the game, and Connie Mack made him his assistant manager. And uh, so he sat on the bench. There were a couple stretches in the late 30s when Connie was sick and Earl Mack did manage the team for short periods of time while Connie couldn't get to the ballpark. But, uh, you know, Connie Mack said, you know, when I step down, Earl will be the manager, which uh, didn't go over very well with the players because most of the players didn't have all that uh, greater reaction to Earl Mack. And his other, his older son, Roy Mack, or his other son from his first marriage, got involved in the front office after uh, Connie uh, assumed majority ownership. And so between the two of them, they were coming along uh, as part of the, the Mack family that was running the team rather than just Connie Mack. But they were still finishing in last place as they went through the war until 1947 when they finally moved up to a winning record of 78 and 76. And in 1948, they uh, got into the pennant race. They were in the race with the Cleveland Indians, the Red Sox, and the Yankees, and they were very much in the race. Now, a couple things happened. Um, you know, they had Sam Chapman playing at Elmer Vallow, Barney McCoskey, whom they had gotten in a trade for George Kell, which was unfortunate, but McCoskey still hit 300 for them. They had Eddie Juice playing shortstop and leading the team, really, uh, on the field. In the middle of the season, Nelson Potter was pitching in relief for them, and he had a session where he, he had a bad game. He blew a game, and as he came off the field, Connie Mack kind of fired him from the team. So he left, he was released, and he signed with the Boston Braves, and he helped win the pennant uh, pitching relief for the Boston Braves the rest of the season in the National League. But the uh, in August, 
Eddie Jews, who was really the team leader on the field, hurt his hand. And between that time and the end of the season, he could never get it back in shape. He was in and out of the lineup, and he was in and out of the hospital a couple times. And because of that, they finally slipped off, and they they fell out of the pennant race. But I remember being so excited. You know, it was the first pennant race I had seen a Philadelphia team ever involved in. And uh, it was very disappointing when they finally slipped back to fourth place. Now, there, are, but there, are bunch, there are a bunch of historians, I guess, who kind of maybe think that that Max uh, abrupt firing or dismissal of Potter was perhaps uh, maybe the reason why the A's kind of, you know, fell out of the pennant race. Well, it was it was a reason. I think the injury to Juiced was was more because until Juiced was hurt, they were still very much involved in the pennant race, even though Potter was gone. But uh, you know, it certainly would have helped if they'd had him around. Do you think that that, and, would, that that was so in the years, the couple of years that followed? Though, do you think that that's that was part of the uh, I don't know the the process of of building a case for questioning Max abilities given his advancing age, especially amongst his sons who were maybe questioning some of it? Well, through the late 40s, I think it became pretty clear that Connie Mack was becoming somewhat senile. You know, some of his players said he's still doing fine, but some of them questioned that uh, he, his decisions seemed to be a little odd at times. And uh, in 1950, they celebrated his golden jubilee of his 50 years as manager. And at the, the end of the season, or near the end, he announced that he was finished resigning as a manager. And uh, his golden jubilee, they finished in last place again with 52 wins and 102 losses. But uh, Jimmy Dykes took over as manager for 51, 52, and 53. And uh, in 52, they got back into the first division again. They finished with 79 and 75 record in fourth place. In 51 and 52, Ferris Fain, their first baseman, led the league in hitting. In 51, trade they made for Gus Erniel from the White Sox. Erniel wound up leading the league in home runs and RBIs for them. And in 52, Bobby Chance came into his own. He won 24 games and led the American League and was named American League Most Valuable Player. The All-Star Game was played in Philadelphia in 1952. And in the, I guess it was the sixth inning Casey Stengel brought Chance in to pitch, and he pitched to three batters, Whitey Lockman, Jackie Robinson, and Stan Musial, and he struck out all three of them. And we were stunned and figured, oh, my God, he can go on now to uh, Carl Hubble's record of all-star strikeouts, (laughs) except that it then suddenly came down pouring rain, and that was the end of the game. But Chance had a great year for them and got them into fourth place. Unfortunately, right at the end of the season, he was hit for the pitch by Walt Masterson of the Senators on his left wrist. And this led to a very sad 53 season because he couldn't quite pitch the way he was used to. So he had a very poor season in 54. 
he was only able to pitch in a couple of games, and it was clear by 54 they weren't going to go anywhere. At that point, you know, in 1953, the Boston Braves moved to Milwaukee. In 54, the St. Louis Browns moved to Baltimore. And it was becoming obvious that a lot of cities were not able any longer to support two teams. You know, New York and Chicago, they could still do so. But it was clear that the Philadelphia A's were probably on their way out. And so all through 54, there was, uh, along with the, the very bad team playing, there was all the talk about where they were going to go, what they were doing with Arnold Johnson, who wanted to buy them and move them to Kansas City. And then late in the season, uh, there, were, there were a couple Philadelphia groups that got together to try to buy them. One group actually signed a contract with them, and it needed to be approved by the American League. And uh, Arnold Johnson, in the meantime, got to Roy Mack, who was representing the A's in league meetings at that point, promised him a job in Kansas City. So when the vote came up in the American League to approve the sale that the A's had signed with the group in Philadelphia, Roy Mack voted no, so that the league did not approve it. So they had to send sell it to Arnold Johnson, and they moved out. And that was the end of the Philadelphia Athletics. It was a, a sad ending. But yeah, let's step back for one second on that, though, because it seemed like it was a little herky-jerky there. It wasn't sort of a clean path towards that sale. Um, you, you had Mac, I guess, who had made that arrangement with Johnson, but yet this Philadelphia group came about and Johnson then wound up voting against his own deal, and then that deal fell no, through no, the Philadelphia deal. No, Roy, Roy Mack voted against it. Ah, okay. And denied having done so, but that was one of the three votes that, that shot it down. It, they had to have six votes in favor of uh, selling the team to this group in, in Philadelphia. So the, uh, the A's secretly were one of the three teams that voted against it. And that was Roy Mack. It was not one of the things you like to think about with the Mack family. Yeah, I guess I'm just I'm just curious as to how if the deal was effectively in in place for Johnson to buy the team. Uh, how did this Philadelphia group come about to uh, offer or to be part of the same bid, and then that sort of falling through? It it um, it just seems like it was a kind of a zigzag approach versus. Uh, what seemingly was a superior deal all along from Johnson and Kansas City. Well, the the Johnson deal had not been finalized. He was still uh, very much involved in it, but it hadn't been finalized and because the A's had not signed the contract, the Max had not signed the contract to sell it to him. Once the Philadelphia deal fell through, then, of course, they did, and they sold it to Johnson, and the American League approved that and the move to Kansas City. But uh, it was, it, it was, as they say, a very herky-jerky process going through the, the end of the A's tenure in Philadelphia, and they said, and they left the fans in Philadelphia and Kansas City were both somewhat disheartened by the way it was done, but Kansas City wound up getting the team. So was there was there 
too much uh, uh, shed tears uh, from the Philadelphia fans because it's pretty clear that the Phillies had pretty much ascended to the top of the the mind share, I guess, of, of the Philadelphia market with regards to baseball by that time, right? Oh, yeah, very much so. Well, there were still still Philadelphia A's fans like me who were very disheartened by what happened. You know, I kept thinking, well, they've been down before and come back, and they maybe they can do it again, but they they never did it in Kansas City either, but they did do it in Oakland with Charles Finley running the team. Uh, did and and it, it's probably uh, goes without saying, but I guess I'm, I'm really curious. What was uh, Senior Max, uh, you know, feelings about uh, the team leaving Philadelphia? Um, it's probably a, with great reluctance that he, or was his influence not waning to the point where it really didn't matter? I, he was still the soul of that team, right? He was the soul of the team, but his business influence didn't matter at that point. Because Roy Mack and Earl Mack had taken out a huge mortgage with Connecticut General Life Insurance to buy out the interests of their younger brother, Connie Jr., and his mother, the second Connie Mack's second wife, so that they really ran the team at that point. Connie Mack Sr. was in the honorary position of club president. But Roy and Earl were running, running things at that stage. And why Kansas City? Uh, obviously, Johnson uh, was a—I guess he was a Chicago-based uh, businessman. What, what, what was the allure and/or the uh, situation in Kansas City, as far as you can tell, that made that the place to go versus anywhere else? Well, he was—he was a good buddy of Del Webb and Dan Topping, the owners of the Yankees, and uh, at some stage along the way. They sold Yankee Stadium to him. And part of the deal was that they also sold to him the Kansas City ballpark because that was their number one, one of their two number one farm teams. And uh, so he had the Kansas City ballpark, which he owned. And, uh, and of course, he had to make a promise to the American League that he would sell Yankee Stadium to uh, because there wouldn't be a conflict of interest at that point when he owned the the athletics, but uh, that's basically where the Kansas City connection came in, and uh, so Kansas City was happy to get it, and they had had a American Association team for many years, but they were very in, ecstatic at getting an American League team, but they didn't do any better than the A's did in Philadelphia. Well, we also uh, we did a uh, an episode uh, a few weeks back about uh, the old Kansas City Monarchs of uh, uh, the Negro National League or Negro American League, depending on what year you're talking about. And it was pretty clear that uh, despite their success and their prowess, uh, the arrival of a uh, major league team in Kansas City was certainly going to be, um, uh, uh, I guess, a death knell or certainly a a major ding in terms of the uh, monarch's uh, ability to draw, uh, and obviously there's bigger issues relating to Negro leagues as well, the integration thing. But uh, author Bill Young, who was also uh, you know uh, and a uh, a fellow author on the uh, McFarland uh, Press uh, label, shall we say, uh, it was a very interesting time where you know uh, in some respects it was a good thing, right? Because you saw 
Major League Baseball recognizing the uh, uh, the allure of the Kansas City market and obviously integration happening broadly, but it also uh, was probably the uh, immediate uh, end of uh, of a franchise in the Negro Leagues that was um, uh, well regarded and and obviously uh, legendary in many respects too. And I guess uh, last question would be sort of uh, based on what you've seen. Obviously, you've still followed the team and even written about them since their Philadelphia days. Uh, how much uh, does the current A's franchise uh, look back and or uh, remember folks like Mac or some of these uh, great players or, or, or any, you know, what are the throwback uh, remembrances? Uh, are they frequent? Uh, have they been uh, fairly active in, in sort of going back to their roots or has it been kind of a fade away kind of thing uh, without much? Well, I don't think there's much, but, you know, they've been to Philadelphia a couple of times. And that's been, you know, kind of a, oh, remember back when thing to do. You know, they, they've got their own championship teams to look back on now. The, the Philadelphia A's are kind of old history to them. Yeah, and I guess the Phillies aren't necessarily in any rush, despite having shared the same park for a number of years with the A's. Uh, <laughs> <Those tenants. laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd think that maybe the Phillies might have some kind of throwback and I'm sure if our Philadelphia listeners will will probably regale us at some point, will yell at their devices and say uh, that there has been or will be uh, some kind of throwback or uh, remembrances or patch or something like that. But, uh, you know, it's partially why we do some of these conversations that uh, they're not forgotten, right, that they are remembered. And obviously there's such a rich uh, baseball history and, and ongoing legacies. And you have a Hall of Famers and obviously Connie Mack being right, a, well. Well, we had for a number of years, starting in around 1996, the Philadelphia Athletics Baseball, Philadelphia Athletics Historical Society, which had a museum up in Hatboro, and uh, I was president of it for 12 years. And we we brought in as many of the old players as we could. We flew Eddie Houston from California or Hawaii. I got to be good friends with Joe Astroff, the catcher, and Eddie Joost, and some of the other old A's players. Bobby Shantz still lives around here. And uh, the society did pretty well for a while, but then uh, as more of the old players died off and some of the, the leaders of the society died off, that it kind of faded away. Did Major League Baseball sort of get in the way or, or, or prevent or, or dissuade you from those things? Because I, I have heard stories where some of these uh, leagues, especially as they become more, like say, say business-oriented, become very, very um, protective and or um, uh, uh, overbearing when it comes to uh, anything re- re- relating to the past histories and the, and the streams of such. No, nobody is, um, nobody's done any of that with me. Uh, when I went out to Oakland, they were very uh, happy to talk with me out there and go back over. Uh, well, actually, we were talking about the history of their team since they moved there from Kansas City, but they were uh, quite happy to hear about the Philadelphia A's Historical Society at the same time. Well, this is this is all very interesting, and I um, at some point perhaps we should uh, set aside some time to maybe talk about the next era of the A's history from Philadelphia, that being in Kansas City, some very interesting and wacky stories and, and, and twists and turns to the, uh, the, the franchise's history there as well. But uh, David Jordan, I want to thank you. Uh, the book uh, is uh, published by McFarland. It's called The Athletics of Philadelphia, Connie Mack's White Elephants. And uh, it is 
uh, a story of Philadelphia sports history. Uh, it is about as timeless as uh, professional modern-day baseball is itself because you're talking about the beginnings of the American League and a team that was uh, at once uh, or twice, frankly, uh, amongst, if not the uh, most superior team in that league, uh, as well as, frankly, a team more than once uh, was uh, near the, the very bottom of such. But the drama of the <laughs> ups and downs of that franchise, uh, the legacy, the, the gigantic legacy of, of a guy named Connie Mack, uh, and, uh, and frankly, you know, these are, uh, the roots of, of not only a team that still exists today, uh, but we're at the very beginning of what, uh, is basically the second and, uh, uh, very strong, uh, American league. And, uh, these things are, are not something that, uh, just kind of spouted out out of nothing. Uh, these are very rich, uh, historical, uh, uh, events and stories, and, and that's partially why we do what we do here on this uh, this podcast. So, I, I, David, I want to thank you so much for taking time to regale us in some of these stories, and uh, I hope we can connect again. Maybe we'll talk about the Kansas City version of the team. <laughs> My pleasure, Tim. Be happy to. Okay, there you have it. Thank you to our guest, uh, David Jordan, for uh, a very interesting conversation about the athletics of Philadelphia. Uh, the Philadelphia A's, the uh, team that uh, got it all started uh, during the American League's inception uh, that uh, helped uh, sort of birth what uh, is now known as the Oakland A's. And shame on you for not knowing the origins of the team's history. Hopefully this uh, enlightened you a bit, as it did uh, for me. The book that David wrote is called The Athletics of Philadelphia, Connie Mack's White Elephants, uh, that is published by our friends at McFarland. And as they say, it is available wherever good books are found um, and including uh, a link to that book on our website. Uh, just look up the episode on uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com and you will see a link to the book should you like to consider and purchase it there. Uh, we encourage you to do so. And uh, we also encourage you to go to the website uh, early and often for all things about this show. It's goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's where you'll find out all the information about what's going on, past episodes uh, you want to buy or, or find out uh, links to books or movies or things that we've referenced here on the show. Uh, it's all there. You want to send us some email, get on our email newsletter, yada, yada, yada. It is all there. Please join us uh, on that uh, site and uh, let us know what you think about the show, some suggestions, whatever you want to do, by all means. Uh, also, please follow us on social media. We appreciate that, too. It's a good way to communicate with us or at least track what's going on this week or in the weeks to come. Uh, on Twitter, that's at Good Seats Still. Uh, you will find us on Facebook with a dedicated page to Good Seats Still available. And you will also find us on Instagram for some nice imagery. Uh, that is at uh, Good Seats Still Available. That's all I got for this week. I uh, can't uh, thank you enough for giving us a listen. Please indeed uh, rate and review us uh, positively if you'd like uh, on iTunes or wherever else that you rate uh, such shows. We uh, we certainly benefit by those uh, those thumbs up and those uh, five-star ratings and et cetera. Uh, and we encourage you to keep doing that uh, early and often, as we say. So thank you. And until our next episode, take care, everybody, and uh, drive safely.